The following podcast contains mature language and adult discussion. This week on Kayfabe, stories you're not supposed to hear. She said, you know, I was going to jump. I I swear to God I was going to jump. But Ernie, when you sat down, that threw me off. Like, why the hell did you sit down? Like, you wouldn't have tried to grab me because I knew she wanted to be rescued. All right, back another week. Yeah, I'm coming from quarantine. <sighs> Getting out more now, though. But, you know, I'm down in Florida, and they are going to probably have to close up again. I mean, I knew this a month ago when they said they were opening again. They were rushing to reopen, looking for this cheap little bump in the market to, you know, these governors that rushed to open, denying what was going on in the world. Well, you know, they're all paying the price now. And I said it a month ago. I said, you're going to see it, not now, not tomorrow, but you're going to see it in three weeks because um, you got to give people enough time to be totally moronic and rip the masks off and run around in crowd bars. And, you know, it's just, you know, you get what you ask for. So, uh this was no surprise to me that this was the path it was, and to any thinking person, uh, anyone, any state that uh, relaxed all of its guidelines when there were still hundreds and hundreds of people getting it every day, and you know now these states are the ones that are up to the thousands and thousands, and they'll have to answer for their actions. It's fine though. It's fine. Listen, the morons all over the place. It's free country. Free country, as I've learned from the many people who feel that it is somewhere in the Constitution that during a health crisis, the government can't tell you to wear a mask. They feel it's in, in some written document that, that they have the right to, do, to, to, to not do that, that it's a protected right to get others sick. I, I don't know. It's a very different Constitution they've read than, than I've read. And, of course, the other thing going on, you know, the questions of race all over the place. And I always go back to wrestling. Wrestling is, is fantastic because it's always the last to the party for everything. And um, uh, racism in wrestling, I don't mean behind the scenes. I've, many of the people I've talked to in the business didn't feel, didn't, that was, feel that there was a culture of racism uh, preventing them in any way from getting... Uh, a fair shot, but the on-camera racism uh, was was plentiful, and um, it's just funny now as I look at at people wanting history to roll back and to undo some uh, unfortunate or unfavorable portrayals of uh, segments of the population. What would you have to do in wrestling to do that? Can you imagine? Listen, here were the ba- there were the basics of every the basic racism in every federation. There was a few things. First of all, in every federation, if the talent was black, they had a hard head, a devastating hard head. The headbutt one of their one of their signature maneuvers. You know, j- just throwing your fist into the junkyard dog's head that ain't going to do anything. Bobo Brazil that ain't going to do anything. Driving your elbow into S.D. Jones's head, and then they would dance. And then, then that was the follow-up racial thing. Was after the the hard 
black head, they would then begin to shuck and jive, do some kind of funky dance. So that always followed the hard head. So there was that kind of racist portrayal that you that you always saw. Same thing with Samoans too. The Samoans, the hard heads. Um, that was also always prevalent. Slick. The manager slick. They couldn't say pimp, I guess, right? Because they were trying to be kid friendly back then. But boy, I, what what do you think his profession would have been? You know, wrestling manager, right? Where okay, what what, what background were they suggesting to sl- uh, of slick with those outfits and the uh, the? And listen, there was a there was a promo. I think it aired on. I actually think it just aired on one of the WWE home videos. Or maybe it was a week on the weekly show. It was, oh, you know what it was? It was the music video for Jive Soul Bro, which was Slick's contribution to one of the wrestling albums. I believe Piledriver, if I'm not mistaken. And they did a video for it. And the video was just like him walking down the streets, the the very inner city streets of uh, some city shot somewhere in Connecticut. And to intro the video, and I think it was on the Pile Driver VHS where all of the music videos were. The intro to that is a close up of him of his lips as he shoves a greasy fried chicken in his mouth. He's eating fried chicken as he intros the video. They 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 zoom out from his lips, and uh, he intros the video. Uh, he I believe he says he's eating his yard bird, for God's sakes. And then they go into that to that video. They were certainly suggesting that he was a pimp. Come on, that get up the cane. Um. How was that pitch meeting, I wonder, when, when, when they had to go into Vince? Got any ideas for the videos? Yeah, uh, why don't we have Slick eating a fried chicken and we can zoom right into his giant lips? Yeah, 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 that's fantastic. Vince loves it. God, we, they're always the last on the bandwagon. So, listen, Roddy Piper, in his WrestleMania match, against Bad News Brown. He didn't do black face. He did black body. He painted an entire half of his body black. So he would stand one way, he was black, and he turned to stand the other way, and he was his Caucasian, doughy, white Roddy Piper in the other way. Where did that stand back then? Blackface had been illegal for a long time, I think, right, in, in, in entertainment. How about black body? Razor Ramon. I mean, listen, blacks weren't the only ones uh, subjected to the to these things. Latinos had their fair share. Razor Ramon. Scott Hall isn't Latino, so they were going for the the uh, I guess the Latino gangster, the razor blade around his neck. Razor Ramon, playing off the Tony Montana deal there. Even even took all their uh, their one liners from that. Tito Santana. Tito Santana had worked for, Jesus, what, 20 years? 
before having to wear a goddamn sombrero to the ring. The El Matador. El Matador? We knew Tito Santana. We didn't need that. I don't know what it is. I don't know why wrestling always goes there. It's the it's the low-hanging fruit, I guess. It's supposed to be funny. The hard-headed blacks, the 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 Razor Ramon and Tito with the sombrero and can't do any better than that. I guess it's easy. You go for the easy stuff, right? It was like before that when the easy feud was the USA versus, you know, fill in the blank. Somebody, and they didn't even, of course, the talent didn't have to be from the country they were portraying. They, they had a vaguely foreign accent. This, make them a Russian, you know. There were some horrendous attempts at Russian accents. I don't even, Ivan Koloff, who's a legend, for I don't even know what that was. I don't think it was Russian. It maybe Russian with a speech impediment and a, and a mental handicap. It wasn't straight Russian. You know, the one thing that McMahon's never did, though, I think. Now, I'm, I'm sitting here riffing, so maybe it's true, maybe it's not. I never saw them pick on their own. I never saw them have a, you know, someone with an Irish last name stumble to the ring and fall down drunk. Never saw that. Would have had to have waited for the hotel rooms, maybe, after the actual show. All right, at this time, where horror movies based on books are coming back, It, the popularity of It, and remake of Pet Cemetery, all these Netflix series are based on thrillers. Great new supernatural horror novel out there called Transfer by the brilliant author of fiction and nonfiction, Sean Oliver, yours truly. Transfer. The book reads a discovery called An Exceptionally Thrilling Story that builds up with a solid pace and keeps the reader immersed and emotionally invested. A four-year-old has just died in the classroom. A shocked community turns its attention to the troubled urban school for answers, and there seem to be none coming. School guidance counselor Lane Waterman, busy handling the school's grief, notices students had been transferring out of PS12 at an unusually high rate for months. Their destinations seem random, the reasons unknown. What is first suspected to be a bureaucratic conspiracy eventually reveals itself to be a far deeper and darker threat crawling through the community. Her investigation into the children's circumstances takes her far off course beyond school and into the belly of a deadly secret hidden in a forgotten urban wasteland. Can Lane put the lid on a spreading menace before the secret gets out? Turns out she's got some secrets of her own. The supernatural horror thriller will keep you guessing until the end. Step inside now. Transfer! supernatural horror novel by Sean Oliver available at Amazon, on Kindle on paperback, it's transfer you know it's kind of a weird time right now for so many reasons uh, reasons everybody knows I hate being so topical and like time period specific with the show because the podcast is meant to be listened to you know, forever, a year, two years, three years from now, you know, unlike live radio, but there's some stuff that pops up and it's too, it's too important or it's too much of a hot button issue to ignore. And, you know, in these hot button topics, 
there's a need for all sides of a story to be told because ignorance abounds on the two extremes of any issue. And um, so the discussion now is police reform. And yeah, I mean, you know, there's the basics. We know in any field, you've got to root out the chooches who, who should be doing something else maybe or, or help them to do their job better. Whether we're talking about a restaurant or police force or a teacher, um, we know these things. Uh, we know that unions in general are necessary but have to become more reasonable condemn misconduct unless they if they don't they stay in their entire membership and additionally guys like my guest today and his partner can't leave him out of the discussion you gotta gotta make sure uh, ernie that i that i keep joe involved but my guest today maybe just has a little bit more of a powerful and effective answer than a lot of the rhetoric we've been hearing so I want to welcome Ernie Stevens. I first have to get permission to call you Ernie versus Ernest. Absolutely. No problem, Sean. Okay. Thank you. You know, Ernie, I came across a documentary on HBO in which you and your partner, Joe, star. I saw Ernie and Joe. I, I thought it was Sesame Street film, maybe, and Joe and Ernie. But I loved them back in the day. But um, what it was was two San Antonio cops taking community policing beyond anything that I'd ever seen as a lay person and, a, and just a, a Joe average. I'm far more than average, but I'm Joe public. Um, so I want to give you the floor to let people know what the hell I'm talking about. First of all, you should find the documentary. It's on HBO. I think maybe it's on YouTube now, too. It's called Ernie and Joe. And it is so worth your time. Forget about the hot button issues I talked about. Just from a humanity standpoint, we're talking about policing mental health issues, in essence. Aren't we, Ernie? We are. And Sean, again, thank you for having me on in a time when they're canceling shows on television like Cops and Live PD. You know, you take a bold stand bringing a police officer on uh, on your on your podcast and let me let me have the forum and the platform on this so thank you very much for the opportunity good you you you've yeah. earned it by uh, by your work which we'll hear about here d tell me what this is just what are we talking about when we say policing mental health disorders sure so of course in society there's a, a, a large population and i say large because the statistics show that one in five people have a diagnosable mental illness so there's a large part of the population that has a mental health component, right, within their within their community, within their own families, and a lot of times, uh, individual have to call the police, you know, for some type of mental health response, uh, whether they're in a mental health crisis, they're looking for services. It, it could come across as as really any type of call. So the police department really needs to be trained and efficient in how they respond to these mental health calls within the community that they serve. Right. So Ernie and Joe, the documentary um, started out really, if we could go back to like 2005. OK, we'll, we'll go back a little bit of time. I'll give you a little bit of history here. So San Antonio Police Department did not have any mental health training prior to that. Uh, I went to some training put on by the Houston Police Department and then was asked to create a curriculum for the San Antonio Police Department based on the resources that we have here and sticking to the foundation of what I learned 
from Houston, which is known as the Memphis Model Crisis Intervention Training, which means it's a 40-hour class. It's a whole week of uh, mental health learning for officers. So in 2005, I came back, I put together the training and began training our department. But we still did not have a dedicated mental health unit within the police department. If you think about that, we're the seventh largest city in the United States with no dedicated mental health you know, type unit. So in 2008. So let me just clarify so that we're on the same page with you here. So if a call comes in, distraught, paranoid, schizophrenic, standing on a bell tower, the cops just got called. And when I say the cops, I mean patrol would respond and there was no guy on patrol that was, you know how you like, you have the bomb guys and you've got the, there was nobody that said, Ernie, you got to go talk to somebody up on the clock tower right now. Right. No, there's no training. There's, you know, you know, I went to the academy 28 years ago and we didn't get trained in mental health. It just wasn't, um, it's not, you know, to be honest with you, Sean, it's not a sexy topic to learn about when you're in the police academy. Right. Right. You want to learn how to shoot and run and and kick in doors and all the, and all the crap. Right. But this is realistic. Right. So we started a unit in 2008 with a couple of officers as me and another officer. And quickly we saw a huge need, you know, within the community. And I immersed myself in the world of mental health. I joined the national Alliance on mental illness and became a board of director and learned everything I could about uh, mental health in general. Uh, you know, it increased my knowledge, getting to know the families and, and the people I was coming into contact with really was on the job training, working very closely with licensed professional counselors and going out as a co-responder type uh, call really helped sharpen my skills. So fast forward now, right? We have 100% of the San Antonio police officers trained in crisis intervention and we start getting some local media. Well, local media leads to a writer from the Atlantic named Ann Snyder that comes down and writes an article called Policing with Velvet Gloves. That gets back to ABC News, Nightline, and Byron Pitts comes down and does the ride along. And from there, the filmmaker, Jen McShane, who was aware of the article written by Ann Snyder and now saw the media coverage on a national level through ABC News, got in contact with Joe and myself and said, hey guys, I'm a, I'm a filmmaker and I'd like to come down and do a ride along with you. So that's kind of that's kind of the backstory of how it, how it all got started. But just the, the identification of the need for this comes out of what? Is there one like high profile case where somebody goes, why the hell didn't we talk them off the ledge or something like that? Or is it just, what happens? Well, I'm gonna give credit where credit's due. So. We did not have an incident like that take place. The very first class I put on for the San Antonio Police Department, I invited a community member, and her name is important, so I'm gonna say it, Janine Owens, an uh, elderly lady in her 70s, came and talked to the class about what it's like to live with a son that has schizophrenia. And then she made a profound statement, Sean. She said, one day, one of the officers might have to come to my house, and you're not gonna understand his behavior. He's going to scare you, and you might have to shoot and kill my son. And I want you to know that if that happens, I'm not going to blame you because you have a family to go home to. That rocked me to my core when she said that because she can't be the only one that feels like that. And why is she resolved to the fact that that's going to be the outcome when she has an interaction with the police? It can't be. She was in the documentary. Was she the one that was teaching the class? Uh, There were two women, one with a mental disorder and one who had a child. Right. So she belongs to that organization. That was the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Oh, okay. She wasn't in that particular one. 
she's been in some some subsequent videos okay but it was it was that her statement sean it was her statement that really lit a fire because at the time i was working very tactical units right i was i was in a tactical response unit which is attached to the game unit and alternates for a swat team i was on dwi units i mean really high speed stuff right and my my entire career path changed in an instant and i said i'm going to do whatever it takes and i'm going to bug the chief and bug him and bug him until he says look just do it leave me alone and let's see what happens and that's really how it happened and, and we started in 2008 as an officer we're talking gang unit stuff right we're talking real high stakes um almost where an officer has to detach the detach uh you know, you always hear that they have to make jokes over the dead body or else you'd go crazy, right? You've got to kind of strip the humanity out of yourself a little bit to deal with certain shit. Now you're talking about an entire policing tactic where it's the complete opposite. You've got to infuse yourself with so much humanity that before you're not even thinking, I mean, you think about keeping yourself safe, but you're thinking about diffusing a situation, understanding the person that you're talking to, total shift in mindset? Absolutely, and I'll tell you why that's important and why it's necessary, right? Police culture is very antiquated. The training hasn't been really updated in a long time. And you will hear officers, you know, when they have to use force on somebody, you'll hear them later kind of try to decompress and do exactly what you said and kind of laugh a little bit about it. Oh, yeah, you know, we had to shoot that guy three times with a beanbag and, and blah, blah, blah. And I, and I say to myself, do you think he woke up that morning saying, hey, I hope today I get in a confrontation with the police and I, and I hope that they shoot me with beanbags? I mean, is that your thought process? You should never be celebrating using forces against somebody. That should almost honestly be seen as a failure. What could have been done differently is what I'm trying to change the mindset in officers. Now, is there a time when, when use of force is going to be necessary? Absolutely. You know, we got tagged the, the hug a thug program, you know, when we started this training. But if you don't start showing humanity through procedural justice during the citizen encounter, what, what are we really doing? Anybody can just show up as an officer and do nothing and leave. But can you make a difference? Can you leave a footprint with that individual? and start changing your community for the better. Nationally, if you were to take a national average, how unfit are cadets who, uh, who come out of the academy? If We're talking about a large metropolis like San Antonio, okay? You know, Podunk, Iowa, we're not worried about. Working in a metropolis where you're going to see a host of situations every day, how unfit are we training our officers to be currently? I wouldn't say unfit, but... Unfit from a not, standpoint of, 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 right. of diffusing a, a mental health issue, I meant. Not unfit in general. I, I don't think we're doing a good job, and this is why. Let's, number one, look at the recruiting process. Who are we recruiting in the police academy? You know, the, the, the age is 21 years old. The male brain doesn't even finish developing until you're age 27, Right. So what would a police department look like, Sean, if we didn't even hire somebody till age 30, right? Where they've got some maturity, they've dealt with uh, life experience and trauma. Would they be better adept to feel with dealing with the community, right? That's just one aspect. Also, 
what does that cadet really know about themselves? And what I mean by that is I teach a, I teach a class with my partner, Joe, called Adverse Childhood Experiences. And it measures the trauma that an individual has experienced growing up, whether it's being involved in a sexual abuse, physical abuse, parents getting divorced, whatever, that can weigh heavily on how they react to trauma when they, when they come out in the field, right? So the more, I mean, you don't know what you don't know about yourself. So the more that you learn about yourself and the trauma that you've experienced and how have you dealt with that, and then teaching a simple course on neuroscience on why does the brain react the way it does, I think is a much better way to prepare cadets for what they're going to see on the other side. Because right now, Sean, they're training them to be scared. They Watch this video. This officer gets shot. This officer gets ambushed. So they're graduating scared, thinking the minute I get out there, I'm going to get killed. And that's just not the fact. How receptive is a, is a 21-year-old cadet full of piss and vinegar mm-hmm. going to be to, you know, you coming in and saying, all right, we're going to talk some neuroscience here, Johnny. Like, would it, does it fit? Would they be receptive? It's not for everybody, and I get it. Uh, like I said earlier, you know, when I get there for the week and I tell them, look, for the next 40 hours, we're going to talk mental health. And I know it's not sexy. I, I know this. However... When you graduate from this academy, you're going to realize when people call the police, they really just want you to show up and give a shit. Honestly, at the end of the day, that's what they want. Now, I understand the law is black and white, and you're going to learn the foundation of law. And within the first five minutes, you're going to know kind of what you're dealing with. But humanity is not black and white. Humanity is full of different colors. So you're going to have to learn to kind of remove your mask of being Superman in the moment and try to make some kind of human connection here, be authentic and transparent. And, and make some kind of attempt to understand perspective from somebody else so you know how to help them. Yeah. Um, you, when you when you come into a situation where you don't know, like you just get a general call, domestic at this address, right? You go. You don't know if you're dealing with someone with a disorder or if it's just a pissed off husband or wife or boyfriend, whatever. Um, how quickly can you assess, oh, time out, you know, we got to employ a little bit of a different tactic here. I think this guy's, you know, maybe seeing aliens behind me or something. We're, we're on a different path here than just a domestic. Right. That's the beauty of a training because the beauty of a training is you're going to learn, first of all, a de-escalation technique, right? So getting there and just calming the moment down is going to help, you know, settle whatever, whatever the stimuli was, that got it where it was. Right. You also have to remember that you're looking at a snapshot of what's happening in the moment. So you're going to have to find out what has happened in the last two hours, last two days, last two weeks that got you to this point, right? Active listening skills is critical in the crisis intervention training model, right? And I tell the cadets and I tell the officers that I teach, if you're talking more than the individual that you responded to, then something's not right because you should be listening twice as much as you're talking. So you can find out exactly what is going on and make that individual a part of the problem solving decision, right? Involve them in this so you can have a favorable outcome without any force at all being used. Right. And you can do that. I mean, usually within what, five minutes of talking to someone, listening, I should say, to someone. Yeah, you know, it depends. If somebody's very manic, that's going to take a little while. 
you know, because you're going <laughs> to try to get a question into somebody that's very manic. It's going to take maybe 30 minutes before you get to ask your first question. So you'll kind of get a feel for it. You're going to ask. I always tell them, look, just ask. Have you ever been diagnosed with a mental health disorder? Individuals are going to be completely honest with you. Uh, I have yet to come across somebody that has said no, you know, on rare occasions. And then I find 25 medicine bottles that tell me otherwise, right? They're, they're going to tell you, yes, I have a diagnosis of PTSD and, and bipolar disorder. So that way I kind of know, okay, what do you know about these disorders? Have you seen your doctor? Have you seen your case manager? You know, so we, we ask a lot of questions to find out what's the best outcome for an individual in crisis. Again, the film is called Ernie and Joe, Crisis Cops. It's on HBO On Demand. Um, there was a scene in the documentary where your partner, Joe, is talking to uh, a man, uh, uh, what would you call it? Not a suspect. When, when you, you're called and you have to talk to somebody, one of the parties in the dispute, I guess. And Joe kind of opened a personal door and saying, like, gave like his his parenting situation and that like it immediately stripped him of the badge and anything that was standing between he and the guy he was talking to. And it was powerful when I was watching it because I said, Oh, right there. How can this guy be pissed at the cops? Even though they may take him in handcuffs he just said, you know, I got a few kids with a couple of different women. I understand. Like, he totally opened, which I would guess 20 years ago, they would tell you never to do. Never get personal. Never open up personal information that they could use against you in the future to hunt you down or whatever. But by doing that, I saw such a change in how he was talking to the subject um, you know the scene I'm talking about. Listen, if you don't want to put over your, your Joe, if you have something competitive going, we don't have to talk about it and give him any credit for it. Now we'll just go to the next question. But if you'd like to address it, I'd love to hear about what you were thinking. And is that something I guess that you guys do all the time? Oh, absolutely. And if you look at the approach, number one, for those that haven't seen the documentary yet, we, we're in plain clothes and we drive an unmarked car. So immediately the approach, it's it's not as escalated. Right. The very first continuum of use of force for a police officer is their mere presence. So us showing up in plain clothes and introducing ourselves by our first name. Hey, my name's Ernie. This is my partner, Joe. We just came to help you and see, you know, kind of what's going on today. That's such a different approach just in itself and even offering to shake a hand that you just don't see in everyday policing. Right. Um, Joe is amazing at what he does because his entire life has been filled with trauma since the day he was born, just about. He's been in therapy since age five. So he can see right through the bullshit, right into the person and say, look, you don't have to pretend with me. You don't have to hide from me. And you certainly don't have to fear me because I see you, right? I can see right into you. So put that aside and let's communicate because I understand. And he's so gifted at that. And um, that scene that you're talking about, incredible, incredibly powerful. We get asked about that scene all the time. In the documentary. Yeah, because you know what? It was two people talking at the same level. It was no more of like an authority talking to someone, like maybe sitting in judgment, like someone gets the, the cops called on them. They're embarrassed maybe. So it was uh, it was just such a great, I don't want to say tactic because that makes it sound cheap, but it was just such a great way that he was able to, that relatability, I guess, is so important with the public. Now, uh, you know, and 
I think he's, as he said he has like five kids with three women. So in addition to like positioning him as a suave ladies man who rips it up in the bedroom, it just makes him so human to someone who's so distraught. It was just, it was great. Well, I mean, and what was so important about that scene was Joe's willing to talk about that. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's brave. Yeah, he's he's willing to talk about his own suicidal ideations that he's had, that he struggled with, and his depression. And if you do that, you're allowing yourself to be God. You understand what I'm saying? You know, you can give all day long, but if you're not allowing to be God, what what good are you doing in trying to be an effective communicator? So he he tears the walls down. We both do it. We we. We set our ego aside and say, look, you know, we've all had we've all had struggles. We all have mental health. We're just somewhere different on the spectrum at the moment. You know, it's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way. Right. This there's a scene with uh, uh, a crack addicted girl who was going to jump off. Uh, I guess it was an overpass, and uh, you follow up in the film with her like a month later. Uh, and she's better and off drugs and she's just the thing she says to you guys because you treated her so differently than her experiences with police prior was probably a big contributing factor to getting her where she was. Uh, give us a further update. Have, do you still keep in touch with her or are we still yes. on the right track there? Things okay? Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, so Kendra is her name. I took her to lunch about, about a month ago. She is still clean off drugs. She is in a... Um, transformation center right now where they have helped her prepare her resume, uh, gotten her a job, prepared her for her housing, about to put her in an apartment with furniture. She is doing incredible, Uh, has reconnected with her own son that's going to be coming down from Kansas and moving in with her. So very excited for her. She's a success story, but it was, we played such a small part in that, Sean. We we helped her in a moment. What she did is going to last her a lifetime. And that's 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 so important, you know. Yeah, but God, that 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 moment on the bridge that that could have gone a number of ways. That it may have just been a moment, but it was poignant to say the least. It, it's funny because she told me she said, you know, I was going to jump. I, I would swear to God, I was going to jump. But Ernie, when you sat down, that threw me off. Like, why the hell did you sit down? Like, you wouldn't have tried to grab me because I knew she wanted to be rescued. But what she didn't know is I'm scared to death of heights and I couldn't have gone any closer to her if I tried. So she was kind of on her own, but in her mind, she's like, these guys aren't going to try to save me. So I might as well just give them what they want because I'm calling for help. That's what she's doing. People either want to get love or they want to give love. And I think we were showing her, look, we want to give you love. And in return, she wanted to get it. Why aren't there more news stories? And I, of course, know the answer, but if I ask it as a question, we could talk about it. Why don't we? Why are we getting news stories every night about cops that say things like everyone either wants to get love or give love? I don't see those stories on TV. Boring. Who wants to see that, right? Um, you know, it's funny because I grew up in the era of cops and I watched it, but it wasn't really a recruiting tool for me. But for a lot of people, it was same thing for live PD. And, you know, what we're seeing today, just to you know, change topics for just a moment with all the civil unrest is that's going to that's going to go one of two ways. Right. We're either going to get like the 9-11 response of you're not going to do this to my country and I'm going to join up and and protect my country. Well, same thing with my community. You're not going to do this to my community. And we're going to get that line of individual or there's no way in hell I'm being a police officer. 
and we're going to see recruiting drop. So, you know, what they want to report is what they want to report. And I really have no control over that. Yeah. It's a shame, though, because it's, uh, you know, we talk about balance and all that stuff that we won't get into here. But uh, middle ground is is always the answer, right? I mean, uh, there's ignorance in talking about abolishing and defunding all police. But, you know, there's also in the argument that, um, you know, God, if he had just handed his driver's license instead of resisted, we wouldn't have had to shoot him 42 times. So in the middle there lies the truth somewhere in between those two. Um how do we educate those that are not law enforcement officers ourselves, but also maybe have not been on the bad end of a traffic stop, uh, maybe having been profiled? How do we let Joe American know that there's a way to do this the right way and we don't have to call for these extreme actions on either side? Right. Well, I think you know, for me and just having these conversations already is we got to stop trying to make a point and make a difference. And what I mean by that is, are we properly educating and informing the public of what your police department does? How are they trained? How do they respond? We just don't have that communication right now. Uh, There's just a lack of it. However, with what's going on in today's climate, we have an opportunity, um, I think, to sit down and, and have these conversations. And, and because a lot of people are calling for police reform and defunding, and I'm not scared of the word defunding. I mean, we might as well call it reallocation of funds, whatever right. you want to do. But hey, show me a line item budget. Tell me where you want to pull from. And then let's ask, how does that affect the community? And if it makes sense, let's do it. You know, it, it, there's, there's such a better way that I think we can be doing things all the way from the recruiting process to the training, to the way that we treat every citizen encounter. Yeah, the, the word defunding is a little uh, deceptive. And so if we talk about reallocating funds or redirecting funds, let's just take an example of, um, of, of your department. And I think you said when you and Joe started, there was 40 hours or 60 hours training a cadet how to shoot a gun and right. eight on communicating with somebody with a mental disorder. Which now, if I'm not mistaken, in the film it said, has gone up to 40 hours. And that's because of an incident. The Sandra Bland Act, which is a Senate bill, 1850, was where a DPS trooper, you know, lost his temper, ended up arresting an individual, a female, and she ended up committing suicide in the jail, right? All over just a brake light that was out. Ridiculous. But because of that incident, there's been a mandate by the state for an additional 40 hours of training on de-escalation of traumatic brain injury, how to recognize that, how to respond to that in addition to mental health. So, you know, officers here get 40 hours, but in order to earn their next step in their peace officer's license to get an intermediate advanced or master's peace officer's license, they have to take the additional 40 hours Sandra Bland uh, 1850 course. So now you're looking at 80 hours oh, wow. plus a mandated, yeah, plus the mandated eight hours every three years as a refresher. So we're pretty heavy here with the training in Texas. But these are the things when people hear defund police, but these are the things like if we could put funds toward additional training for something like this, th- that's a reallocation of police funding. So these are the things that are being discussed now in, in the media. Let me just ask you personally, do you get pissed off When something, there's a lot of gray area in the job, no question about it. And, you know, I could show you 
you know, four seconds of my life and make it look one way, just like you'd show four seconds of a body cam and make it look one way. But when you see an entire video and you know, oh God, he messed up. Do you just get pissed off because you know you're going to get hit with the shrapnel just because of the job you're in, having nothing to do with who you are, but you're going to get hit with shrapnel and you're going to listen to the news and you're going to be painted with a paintbrush. And you know, the, do you just personally get annoyed when you see an officer fuck up? So that's interesting. I'm glad you asked that because usually when you see an incident like this take place, you hear law enforcement say, well, what happened prior to that? Let me see the whole video. You didn't see that in this case. You saw law enforcement unite and say that was wrong. Like that, that should never have happened, but we're our own worst enemies. Do we not do the same thing? And what I mean by that is you go to Starbucks and recently, if you've seen on social media, an officer found a tampon in his coffee. Do we not go on social media and say, well, let's, uh, let's never go to Starbucks again because they're all pieces of shit. We, we do the same thing. So when you ask me that, do you get mad? I, I say, I have to look in the mirror because we're, we're putting up with what we tolerate. We're doing the same thing in law enforcement. And can we just stop? That officer doesn't represent all of law enforcement. Just like the moron who put the tampon in the coffee doesn't represent every employee at Starbucks. Right. Right. Do you feel that the unions cling too much to the, I know their job is to defend the rights of anything. I mean, we were talking about a bricklayer's union, a police union, a teacher's union. Uh, somebody's accused. You have to stand in their corner. But when it becomes cut and dry, do they stand there a little too much and, and, and in, in that the spotlight of guilt? So with police unions, and, and I served on the uh, Chief's Advisory Action Board, which means I reviewed officer misconduct along with the Civilian Review Board also then we would make a recommendation for discipline, right? If discipline applied, and then it would go to the chief. And then the chief had final say so. Now, during that process, what we found were police officers on the board, we had seven officers and six civilians. The law enforcement side always handed down a heavier punishment when the vote came compared to the civilians. Wow. Right? So that tells me we don't, we don't like and tolerate misconduct because it affects everybody like what we saw with George Floyd. However, the case goes over to the chief. We may ask for an indefinite suspension, officer to be terminated. The chief will uphold it. The officer will appeal it because of the contract. It then goes to an arbitrator and an arbitrator gives him his job back. So, you know, it's, it's difficult because, you know, we, we fire the officer and then an arbitrator gives him his job. back. How often do we not we, meaning the general public, not have enough information to make informed decisions. Listen, we live in a 140-character world with Twitter and whatnot. Um, so somebody looks at 140 characters and says, yeah, I read the news today. But how how much are we missing with something? Let's take, um, I think it was Buffalo, right? There was They were clearing the streets. There was a 75-year-old man. He got decked hard he was standing in the way he was yelling at them no question but he was he was hit like like an nhl body check you had 50 officers which resigned from that detail i don't know what it was called it was probably some kind of a, a special unit but they in solidarity of the officer that was reprimanded stepped down now they said it, they 
they didn't agree. I, th I think, I don't want to misrepresent, I don't think they were agreeing with hitting the guy. They were saying that he was reprimanded after following orders. Right. So vicarious trauma, right? In the world of social media and what we know with social science is that, Sean, if I use excessive force against you and somebody captures that on video and then plays it, and your five friends see it, or you go and you tell your five friends about it, that they can be traumatized even more than the force that was used against you. Now multiply that on social media. And what people saw with George Floyd, that's why we saw you know, the, this, this gigantic civil unrest because of the vicarious trauma that has taken place. So same thing on the police department side. You know, you see this, you say that's unfair treatment, we're gonna show solidarity and we're all gonna quit this volunteer unit of a mobile field force or whatever they were called and let somebody else stand in the line. We're not gonna do it. So, you know, it, it's a shame that it comes to that because everybody wants to make a point, like I said earlier, instead of trying to make a difference. Yeah. Um, you are the czar of all law enforcement here in our fantasy world. You've just been crowned that by a force greater than us. Um, what do you put in place now, either in training or on the street level, that you think ha would have the best chance at ensuring effective policing with lasting effects, not ripping up the weeds every six months and you know sending people through the cyclical uh, recidivism system? What do you think, if you had unlimited funds, this magic wand scenario, what would you do to right the system? Number one, Sean, I would put a lot of effort into officer wellness programs. 228 officers committed suicide last year. 89 died in the line of duty. We are killing ourselves as a, at a rate of this year, four to one. We do not take care of ourselves. We are fatigued. We are stressed. And we are afraid to ask for help. If we're not in tip top shape, how is the community going to get the best service from their law enforcement? They're not. So number one, first and foremost, I would want to take care, better care of the officers and let them know it's okay to say something if you're not feeling good. You know, if I say, you know, if you say, Hey, Hey Ernie, let's go bowling, you know, next Thursday. And I say, you know, Sean, I'd love to, but I got to meet with my therapist. That shouldn't shock you. Mm. I, I don't want that to shock you. I want you to say, oh, okay, well, we'll catch up next week. We need to normalize and try to strip the stigma of, of labels for, for law enforcement when they need help. If you have a healthy department, you're going to have a good relationship with your community. But when officers are working double shifts because there's not enough personnel and they're trying to fill, fill districts or chase the overtime, it tears you down. And over time, what we've seen is an epidemic in law enforcement when it comes to suicide. That's one aspect. I would also, you know, look at recruiting, look at curriculum, look at communication skills. We teach, we teach cadets real good how to shoot a gun and how to apply a tourniquet and, um, you know, run fast and jump over walls, but we're not real good at teaching them how to talk to somebody, you know? So it's basic things that you need as an individual, as a human to be able to connect with other people. You know, even if the, if the officer doesn't, volunteer for help or doesn't come forward saying they need help there is a process by which a supervisor can i have a good friend in law enforcement i remember him telling me that um 
there was you know there was somebody who you know a little stressed maybe uh, through some uh, I don't know if there was specific incidents or there was there was just somebody on the force where captain maybe chief I don't know who it is came and said hey man why don't you why don't you go talk to somebody but there was a moment where he said can we have your service uh, revolver and like that and I don't know if that's the same for all uh, uh, jurisdictions but when the officer had to hand in the gun it that's when it was like it had gone to a different level and he felt stigmatized but um you can be told by a superior you need to go talk to somebody because i'm noticing something about you right so maybe it's also training of superiors to identify things absolutely yeah and you know we talk about red flags i I talked to the supervisors about this at an in-service training and i say look if they're starting to have minor accidents because they're just not focused if they're calling in sick if they're burning through their vacation time you know check on them find out what's going on if they're they're picking up all this overtime are they why are they doing that do they not want to go home for a reason like there's always a reason behind what you see and your eyes don't always tell you the truth and that's where you have to have these hard part conversations so absolutely training supervisors is a part of it but i would also train spouses i would invite the family members and to say, these are the things you need to look for. Is your husband overspending or your wife overspending and Amazon showing up every few days? Are they dependent upon pain pills and continuing to go to the doctor claiming for different injuries all the time? Because these are realistic. Are, you know, are they streaming porn all night long? These are negative coping skills that I see on a daily basis with officers. And it's, it's sad because there's help available. They're just too scared to ask for. Well, you've described my entire life there in the last 30 mm-hmm. seconds, I'm sorry to say. Um, what's the Amazon deal? What, what what did you mean there? They're just spending beyond one's means? Exactly. Okay. You know, they're just trying to fill a void, you know. And uh, uh, it, it's, it's a shame because so many officers are not financially fit. I would also teach them a, a finance class and how to properly finance your money to invest. Um, what's your what's your rank in the department? What should I be calling you here? A sergeant? I'm, lieutenant? No, no, I'm I'm just an officer. In the, so the promotion process in San Antonio is kind of weird. If you promote, you have to leave the unit you're in to go to you know the next unit with investigations or follow up or whatever. And for the last twenty out of twenty five years, I've been in a specialized unit, whether it's a gang unit, tactical unit, DWI unit, mental health whatever. And I never wanted to leave those because I love doing it. You know, it's a specialized skill and, you know, it takes time to perfect some of those, those skills. So I just stayed where I was. And so, the, the sad part about that, Sean, is in the department, you're only allowed to be as smart as your rank. So I don't get asked for my opinion too much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, the pension's a reality too here, dude. You, you may want to take the damn test and at least... Get into the spot before you ride off into the sunset. Listen, before we go, give us a real-life success story from your experiences with Joe, one that you're most proud of. With Joe, I'm glad he's alive today. Um, You know, there was a time when I was working with him, and, and, you know, he's going through a divorce. Uh, his, His life's a mess. I know that he's had suicidal thoughts in the past. And then one of the individuals that he was deployed with in the Marines came back to the States and then committed suicide here recently. Um, well, a few years back and it hit Joe really hard. And I thought, you know what, this might be it. And so I made myself available to him 24 hours a day, you know, whether it was meeting him after school, having coffee, riding to work together, riding home together. I just didn't want to leave him alone. 
because you know in law enforcement you carry a radio and it has a little orange button on it and when you push that orange button police officers are going to haul ass to get to you right your emergency tone well joe was pressing his his mental health tone and i could see it and i could hear it and a success for me is watching him be successful today graduated school remarried doing well has a business so watching other people succeed really brings a lot of gratification to me Ernie, where can we find you on social media and reach out and drop you a line? Yeah, I'm, I'm only on Twitter at eStevens0845. Uh, you know, you can go on uh, Facebook or Instagram. I think Ernie and Joe, the film, is on there and always kind of connect you know, to, to somebody on the film and reach out to me that way also. And I'd love to hear from you. You know, watch the film, watch the documentary. Let me know what you think. Yeah. And uh, listen out there, you, you, the most important thing I want you to take away from this today, in addition to that you, you've got to monitor your Amazon orders and your Pornhub time, um, is that uh, there are people that, uh, this was my big takeaway, I should say, that in this time of uh, uh, selective news items, there were people out there going to great lengths to understand the person that they're going to encounter for maybe a half hour one time in their entire life but that encounter is significant enough to these police officers that they studied extensively and kind of bear their souls and put themselves in emotional jeopardy um you know which which is uh brave as well it goes beyond just the bulletproof vest so i humbly thank you for that and parting words for me, Sean, is to the community, continue your faith in your police department, and I'll do my part because I'm not going to lose faith in you. Ernie Stevens, Officer Ernie Stevens. Great, great segment. I'm glad I got to put that out there. Equal time, right? A lot of horrible things getting the press right now. So it's good we get that type of stuff out there. Officers going above and beyond. Speaking about going above and beyond, I always promise to answer your Twitter questions, your Twitter questions here to finish off each show. Gil Boldberg says, In WCW Timeline 2000, Russo said it would be his last wrestling interview. Shockingly, he would go on to do more wrestling interviews, as well as start his own podcasting network. Have you ever confronted him about this? What am I going to do? Confront him? What am I going to scream at him because he decided to do more interviews? I think at the time, he was. I think he was a little fed up with the coverage he was getting. Uh, he was happy that I kind of handled things in a, a little more professional uh, fashion than he was getting from other people or just at least gave him an opportunity to say his side without too much judgment. You know, what am I, I going to do? He wanted to do more interviews. And he went on to listen. He's, he's got a great career now hosting all those uh, podcasts. And I don't know how the hell he does this five times a, a week. Good God. Teaching's the worst. Teaching is the worst. Asks, smelliest guest. Man. Um, 
I guess I've been pretty lucky. One of the things we did, and here's a little look inside. You guys like when I talk about the production aspects of kayfabe commentary shows. I'm laughing because of the, the re- it may get a very different reaction from you than it got from the guys on the set. I always made sure <laughs> that our sets were sprayed before guests came in. So we had our, in our gig bags, in, in our uh, equipment, we had a selection of room fresheners, which I demanded be sprayed uh, in any of the suites or breakout rooms that, in which we were working. Because, you know, four or five guys in a room for enough time start humming, you know. Um, I believe, if I'm going to be totally honest, I'm, I think that uh, I, at one time Craig was seated near Vader, who at one time stood for a break in the shooting and said that the uh, just the, the waft of ass that followed him off the chair was spellbinding. And um, that's the one I, I remember most uh, vividly. I don't know if there's any others, but uh, I'm sure they may, they may come to me. Uh, at which time I will uh, pass it off to you. Salvatore Martone, without any hyperbole, how awestruck were you by Eric Bischoff's tan during his WCW timeline? It's maybe the most amazing thing I'd ever seen in my life. Was he very... I have to go back and look if he was very tan. I'll have to I'll have to bring it up and, and check it out. I don't remember it offhand, so it obviously didn't make much of an impression on me. His teeth are very white also, so I think the contrast of any tan he had and the very white teeth... Uh, may have made it look a little more freakish uh, than it actually was. Um, successor of fate, should WWE stop taping shows until the COVID-19 situation is under control to protect their talent? Of course, this is a no-brainer. Um, of course, these guys have to work, yes, uh, but everybody's kind of on hold here. Everybody's work has been compromised. Everybody's money has been compromised. A lot of the credit card companies and whatnot are are extending some grace because this was a national epidemic. I think the McMahon family is in that uh, segment of the world that thinks uh, telling a virus to go away makes it stop and that lifting sanctions uh, does anything other than make it increase tenfold. So, you know, I think there's some neurons that aren't firing properly in the uh, in the upper echelon of the McMahon family, if that's what they're thinking. And certainly, your talent has to be has to be your number one concern. People are asymptomatic with this. Um, it's it's not always going to show up as a fever. You can't put a bunch of people in a ring and have them breathe on each other for 20 minutes and not expect something to happen. And yes, indeed, the company should be liable if they do make these guys do it. And if they shove a piece of paper in their face saying that they're not liable, nobody should sign it. That, that would be a, a terrible thing. Found objects. Do the recent revelations possibly cast the casual tone of old ring, old school ring rat stories in a different light? I don't think so. I mean, consensual uh, exchanges of bodily fluids uh, between these stars and people who wanted to meet them. Uh, I mean, this, what are we going to go back in? Well, Mick Jagger? Is that, like, this is this is what happens, right? This is what they used to call them groupies. Like, this kind of happens. So I don't know any of the rat stories. Uh, that, listen, you know, mistreatment is a different story. This is 
this is a different story, let me just say. The mistreatment of somebody or taking advantage of somebody. The whole rockers thing, you know, fucking zooting the drinks. I, 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 there's nothing to be proud of there. I'm just mentioning them because they are the oft-discussed uh, roofie kings of the uh, of the bars. But uh, I don't know. I mean, groupies are groupies. I, 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 it doesn't color that in a different light. I think the line is uh, mistreatment. Um. You could we we could debate the Scorpio taught as God whipping story I guess as something that's kind of skirts that line. Shun Kenpu says, "Have lawyers ever asked to view any of the you shoots as, for want of a better word, evidence relating to sexual assaults or other crimes?" Uh, no, but I don't know anyone's talked about a uh, a sexual assault on on camera with us. That I recall. Fortunately. I do think, though, that... I do think that... You know, that... Again, I, I, wrestling is a little late to the game with everything. So, I think that era is over. I think that behavior was kind of exclusively something of the 70s and 80s. And before that, too. But I... Uh, um, 90s, I guess, too. But those road... Those rat road stories. It doesn't go on now, from what I hear. So uh, it's uh, hopefully hopefully it's a moot point, and we move beyond that. Boy, the shoot interviews are going to be real boring in about ten years, aren't they? The hell are they going to talk about on these podcasts? Listen, I'll tell you one thing: we've done enough talking for one week. I certainly have. And uh, listen, patreon.com slash podcast. okay? You want to help produce this show. You are the producers of this show. You are the producers. It's entire, entirely dependent on your subscription contribution, okay? $1.99 a month. Coming on board, most recently, President AJR. Thank you very much for supporting the show. There are expenses associated with everything, folks. I mean, certainly not as much as a kayfabe podcast, uh, a commentaries production. I mean, that was that was thousands and thousands of dollars you were watching up there. Then how people wanted to justify downloading it for like eight cents. I don't. Well, I mean, there's a reason you don't see it anymore. So you got what you wanted. Enjoy Netflix. This has been a production of Sean Oliver Media, LLC. Music by the great Kevin McLeod, licensed under a Creative Commons license. And we'll see you guys next week. Have fun, but not too much.